Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And today, I have for you, uh, we're going to talk about the increasing tensions in the Himalayas, Russia turning the COVID crisis into an opportunity, and government collapses in the major nations of Europe. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. All right, Countries around the world begin cracking down on U.S. tech firms, namely Twitter. Uh, we have Uganda, where they effectively banned Twitter for meddling in the election. And Twitter gave out this long-winded explanation of uh, why banning and censoring people online is bad. Uh, apparently not realizing that they were effectively calling themselves out for what they did. Uh, there's a nitroerg explosives plant in Beirut, a town in southern Poland. Uh, it has exploded, leaving one dead and one injured. Now we have Germany's economy holds better during lockdown than 2009 financial crisis, with a 5% drop in GDP as opposed to a 5.7 drop. Uh, and they attribute this sex... The success, the success is attributed to Germany's strong industrial base, uh, and you know what? I can I concur. I concur. I would appreciate a strong industrial base for America as well. Russia pushes forward with the reopening of their schools, and we'll get it more into Russia later. Uh, and their power plays in, during this crisis. Two passengers on a subway in Athens, Greece, uh, beat the station master after being asked to wear a mask. Uh, well, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I guess people are getting tired of the restrictions. We'll see how much longer governments can keep them in place, though. Uh, though there is some talk in, uh, the U.S., in some of the states that are, were really locked down, like, hard... Like, what was it, New York and Chicago. Now, Chicago's not a state, but uh, it's a major city in the United States. They're now talking about the necessity of reopening and reopening quickly. Uh, complete 180 of their position. Maybe the election has something to do with it. We're not going to get into it. Uh, so there's that. And then South Korea is in talks with Qatar um, to pressure Iran to release the oil tanker seized by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Peter Zion fans, the tanker wars are already upon us, but this is pretty interesting given um, that they're talking to Qatar um, instead of Iran, but uh, I guess Qatar has good relations with Iran. Oh, uh, yeah, I read that Qatar has good relations with Iran, and so that's why the South Koreans are going through Qatar, to try to get Iran to release the oil tanker, because, you know, I'm pretty sure South Korea, being a major energy importer, would appreciate not having its energy uh, held hostage from them. Who knows, maybe the Iranians will bribe them to buy oil from Iran instead. But, moving on, 
Oman introduces a new law where government budget talks and the questioning of ministers would no longer be public affairs and would instead be private and held in private. Uh, in my notes here, I say it's getting, it's probably getting really bad behind the scenes and they just don't want, and they don't want that to get out to the public. I heard that they and Saudi Arabia were even cutting down on their welfare uh, programs due to uh, lower volumes of sale with regards to oil uh, due to the collapse in demand from people being forced to stay at home. And apparently they reduced prices by like a 1%. They did like a 1% cut to prices uh, when they the OPEC had their meetings and whatnot. So less money, less welfare. Maybe they'll have a strong recovery this year as countries get around to reopening. We'll see. Only time will tell. But now we're going to move on to the Pakistan. Well, the Pakistani military. Uh, as they have engaged in military raids on a militant insurgent camp in Pakhtunkhwa. Uh, Pakhtunkhwa? Yeah. Yeah, I got it right. Or at least I think I did. Uh, and this, this is a province in Pakistan's northwest. And in the fighting, three Pakistani soldiers were killed and two militants are dead now. So, and one of the militants was a bomb-making expert, according to the Pakistani military. Um, so I guess they're dealing with terrorism in their northwest. Well, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Uh, I don't know who exactly they'd be the freedom fighters for, but I hear fighting in the mountains is a bit of a bitch. So, and while we're on the topic of Pakistan, four Pakistani soldiers were killed in a border skirmish with India. And you can see now why I brought our attention to escalating tensions in the Himalayas. Uh, this isn't, this is not going to play well to any sort of detente situation with India, uh, if either side were even attempting a detente with one another. They did their traditional trade-off of prisoners and nuclear sites, with the locations where they would transfer the locations to avoid attacking them. So there's that level of semi-trust, considering that they went through with that, but this is just making the situation between the two worse. And we'll see if uh, China finds their way involved, uh, finds their way into this situation in one way or another. Uh, they are getting pretty belligerent in the Himalayas, forcing India to ramp up in kind. And India ramping up is perceived as a threat to Pakistan. So you have militarism in the Himalayas. And we'll see if it evolves into an arms race over who can fight in the mountains better. Um... That would be horrifying for the people living in the Himalayas, like Kashmir, Nepal, and Tibet. But for now, it's still at a bit of a low simmer. We'll see how that goes on as the re as the Cold War in Asia uh, continues over the decades to come. Uh, what do we have here? All right, we're gonna go back to Europe, where we have well. It's kind of still Asia-related because the UK Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, wants China to allow the UN rights inspectors to visit Xinjiang, 
to examine the current state of Uyghur Muslims living there. Uh, that is either never going to happen, or if they are allowed in, they're going to get the propaganda tour. <laughs> they're going to get a propaganda tour straight out of the Nazi handbook. If any of you have seen those um, propaganda films that Germany had back in the day when people were questioning what, what was happening in these camps that you keep relocating all the Jews to, and they put out like a little film where it's like, oh, look, they're happy here. We're giving them all the best amenities. And they're, look at those smiles. Do you see how happy they are? Can't, look at, they couldn't be happier. Really happy. <laughs> and then you turn the cameras off and uh, war crimes ensue. And likely, if they ever get are allowed to get into China to visit this location in northwestern China, uh, that's probably what they're going to get. I don't expect that they'll even get that far. Uh, it's a pretty sensitive thing for the Chinese to the point where they censor it overseas. But an interesting thing to note, as the UK is increasingly drawn in uh, on the other side of the Cold War with China, uh, as they reintegrate with their former colonies in the region. I bet they probably never expected to be asking for the British to come back. But here the British are. They even have, in a couple episodes ago, we mentioned that the British sent their first aircraft carrier, well, not their first aircraft carrier, their first supercarrier, the Queen Elizabeth class, um, they sent it to the South China Sea. That's its first deployment, and it's en route as we speak. So, this is probably just going to ramp up tensions between them and China, and I'm sure the Indians, with mixed feelings, are going to appreciate their former colonial master being there to back them up. And while we're in Asia, we'll move to the north a little bit. The North Koreans display a new submarine launch. A new submarine-launched missile platform. Well, not platform, but the missile. Or so, that's what we believe it to be. Uh, it's North Korea, so it's really hard to confirm. I know that they've opened up slightly to the South Koreans uh, over the past year. But it's North Korea we're talking about, so it's still pretty closed off really tightly. So, only time will tell if it was actually something new. Or if it's actually a submarine-launched missile in the first place. But, interesting, interesting thing to note. Uh, and last but not least, the Sudanese protesters uh, in Sudan, obviously, uh, burn Israeli flag in opposition to normalization of relations with Israel, uh, which is that normalization process now being dubbed the Abraham Accords. So... Sudan is not very happy with their government's decision to normalize relations with Israel. We'll see what happens in the future. I knew that Sudan is in a bit of a rough patch with regards to its government right now. And we have potential for instability there, as well as in Ethiopia, where they are fighting rebels who have retreated to the mountains, which always goes well for the which always goes well for militaries. Uh, we could see some sort of uprising in Sudan should their government, which at this point is battling for legitimacy, uh, if anything were to go wrong and then you have some radical group 
take control of the country, you could see them pull out or just ignore wholesale this normalization of relations and even go on a war path or just redeclare war on Israel and then just sit there because there's no like land route between Sudan and Israel because Egypt is in the way. Technically, they both have access to the Red Sea, which is that little body of water. If you look on a map, if uh, the body of water between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, that's the Red Sea. Technically, uh, they both have access to the Red Sea. Israel has like a little sliver of land uh, where they have a coastline. So they could technically fight each other, but neither of them are really naval powers or amphibious for that matter. So it'd be like a more of a diplomatic protest of the ultimate degree. But interesting thing to note. Now we'll get on to the meat of the segment. And it all starts with good old Russia, the family favorite. And Russia is set to reopen air travel with Finland, Vietnam, India, and Qatar. Why is that important? Because it plays into the larger theme that I've noticed regarding the Russians over the past couple weeks and months, really. And that is that they are turning this crisis, this COVID-19 crisis, into a major opportunity for themselves. Now, we've talked about the Russian Sputnik V COVID-19 vaccine. And we've talked about how they're really pushing it hard, getting it exported into a lot of locations. And some locations, uh, some countries, I should say, have been allowed to produce it domestically. They got a license, likely paying the Russians uh, for every vial sold or even just used slash produced. Um... But I wanted to go in depth because it kept popping up. It kept popping up. Oh, this country gets the Sputnik V vaccine from Russia. This country gets a licensed production. This country, this. And I'm just like, hmm, how many countries are getting this vaccine? Because it's, it's a lot. And when I did the research, because I was kind of, uh, for a majority of the week, I was kind of wondering what I was going to report on. Because the news is kind of all over the place and saturated with COVID, but I don't need to regurgitate to you what you've heard on the news. Uh, but I decided I was going to look into this one. And then the story that I'll talk about after this popped up like right at the end of the week and is effectively going to eat up the rest of the show. But for now, we're going to talk about the vaccine and just how widespread it is, and the geopolitical implications that it has. Now, obviously, Russia is not the only one with a COVID-19 vaccine, but it's the only one that's going so far with it. And I'll list off the countries that are allowed to have the vaccine outside of Russia right now. There's Mexico, India, Algeria, Argentina, Belarus, Bolivia, Palestine, Serbia, Brazil, Egypt, Kazakhstan, Nepal, Uzbekistan, Venezuela, and then there's obviously the Russians themselves. Now, excluding Russia, the country that made it, that's 14 countries uh, in agreement to either buy this vaccine from Russia or have been licensed to produce it. And that is about 256.2 million orders for this vaccine 
with India alone accounting for 100 million by itself. And South Korea is, I believe, in talks to get a license to produce 150 million doses of the vaccine. Wow. And I expect that the unofficial Russian republics of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan will receive the Russian vaccine as well. Now, this includes Abkhazia and South Ossetia. I was struggling remembering their name, but I got it. I, I know my geography enough. And looking at this and taking the step back to look at just how far spread it is, that's like, how many continents? <laughs> oh, wow. It's every continent except for what? Australia and Antarctica? It's ridiculous. A, a quarter of a billion doses. And vaccine by itself is pretty important, you know. A lot of countries are mandating that you get the vaccine before they undo restrictions and whatnot. So the fact that they're getting this vaccine out means that they're going to make bank off of this crisis uh, as it ends, really. But another opportunity that I see for Russia is that the ability for them to expand their soft power influence around the world. And I do mean around the world because, again, they're selling it to countries on five continents. What, five continents? What do you Seven? There are five continents, right? One, two, three, four. Yes, all right, five continents. I almost thought that there were only five to begin with, but I know my geography. So it's spread really far and wide across hundreds of millions of people, and this is a really good opportunity for them to expand their soft power influence around the world. Now, soft power is influence basically from countries liking you. Whereas hard power is influenced from having a big stick that you can beat people over the head with. Like nuclear weapons, which Russia has plenty of. But the soft power aspect is one that Russia was kind of lacking in for a while. They could use this to build up their soft power. Because I'm pretty sure people around the world are going to very much appreciate having Russian vaccine. They're going to appreciate having the vaccine. There are a lot of us who uh, aren't going to get it. But the people who want it are going to appreciate having it. And if it comes from Russia, they're going to appreciate Russia specifically for giving it to them. Um, now, they don't, now, they're not giving it to China because the Chinese have their own vaccine, I believe, that they're distributing to the population. But the Russians have apparently found a market of 256 million other people. And the list keeps growing, like... This is just the updated list, uh, with many countries in the former Soviet space uh, getting the vaccine. Uh, Belarus and Uzbekistan. Obviously, the Baltics and Ukraine aren't going to get it. And I, at this point, I don't even have to list off the Caucasus countries because, well, they're under de facto occupation by the Russians, so they're going to get it whether they like it or not. But, uh... Yeah. Oh, I almost forgot to bring up Kazakhstan, so that's three out of what? That What does that leave? Uh, Tajikistan, Turk, Turkmenistan, and Kyrgyzstan, and that's about it. 
those are the only three in Central Asia that haven't agreed to get the Russian vaccine. Uh, I expect the Russians to force it down their throat at some point in the future. But, major opportunity for the Russians, and I believe that they will not pass over it. Or at the very least, they're going to call in these favors that they're getting now at some point in the future. Maybe ask countries to look another way. Uh, when Russia does something like, that may or may not piss off the Western world, like maybe annex Ukraine or fund rebels in the Ukraine who conquer the country in a civil war and then and offer themselves up for annexation to Russia. Or maybe there's a rebellion in the Baltics and Russia asks South Korea to look the other way in the UN. <laughs> Russia is king at weaponizing their economic dependencies that other countries have on them. Uh, namely, this is seen in the oil weapon, where they suddenly, their natural gas pipelines going to countries suddenly have to go under maintenance whenever those countries do something that Russia doesn't like. I expect that these agreements come with some stipulation, maybe not necessarily hard quid pro quo, but silent, more subtle agreements uh, on the back end that we'll figure out, or maybe we won't figure out later on, that will benefit the Russians. But any, but all that aside, this is going to be a major boost to the Russian economy, selling all of these doses of the vaccine around the world. Alright, so, major boost to the Russian economy, they'll probably use it for development, and they're probably going to use it for the modernization of their military, their SU-57s now? Yeah, I believe that's their new one, the SU-57 and their T-14 Armadas, going to probably try to get some more of those as militarized, as they modern their, modern, let me get my English back together, as the Russians modernize their military, um, and then hunker down for economic development, I suppose. Because right now, they're oriented towards their military. And when you look at what they've been doing in the Caucasus, that's for good reason. They probably expect that they're going to resecure their former borderlands through force. And better to have overwhelming force. And then, after the conquest is over, they can hunker down for economic development. Uh, but for now, they're probably going all in on the military to make their fights as lopsided in Russia's favor as possible so that they don't bleed themselves dry. Their demographic structure isn't going to allow for something like that, uh, at least not for a couple decades. They are undergoing major recovery efforts I outlined in the Relative Power of Nations and I believe one episode after that. But... Uh, that's the Russian situation for now. Very interesting, and I love keeping an eye on it. Again, it's the family favorite. And another interesting thing to note about that is that it's an easy bypass to the economic sanctions. Uh, the sanctions that don't rely on energy sales from Russia, that is. Because um, Russia, make, make, make no mistake, Russia's going to make money off the sale of these vaccines. And it's it's going to be a major boost to the economy. I'll leave it there because now I'm repeating myself. But 
very smart move by the Russians going all in on the vaccine and overseas sales. But now, when we get into the next part of the meat, we'll get into the government collapses in Europe. Alright, and we are back and ready to talk about government collapses in Europe. Now, for my fellow Americans, uh, the parliamentary coalitions within the governments have collapsed, not the actual entire government, and that's for those of us out of the loop, if you who don't know how parliamentary systems work, myself included. If you hear news stories on government collapses in reference to a European country, this is most likely what they're talking about. Unless shit hits the fan really bad, but I don't I don't think we're there just yet. I don't I don't think governments are straight up collapsing like state collapse, but you know. Uh really interesting phrasing that many news outlets are using with regards to the collapse of the coalitions cuz it's referred to in those countries uh the coalitions are referred to as a government uh so a more kind of strict usage of the word government rather than the kind of catch-all term that we use here in America the government so yeah interesting difference in culture but um before we get into the major news stories, I'll get into the honorary mentions. There's just two. There's Estonia, their government collapsed, and there were major resignations in Germany, including the Prime Minister, Angela Merkel. Uh, although she did announce that she was going to be resigning anyway. I believe she was supposed to last year, but she's resigning this year now. Uh, probably due to the crisis. So, there's that. Honorary mentions are over. Now we're going to get into the first of the two that I have uh, that I feel are pretty important. Number one, the Netherlands. Now, the Dutch Labour Party leader has stepped down over a scandal regarding child benefit fraud. Uh, around 10,000 families had to repay tens of thousands in euro subsidy money um, because of this fraud. Now, these people, these are regular people, they were themselves accused of fraud uh, with regards to the child benefits, and they got smacked with this because they had to pay up money that a lot of them probably didn't have because um, they were taking care of their children, and they, if they needed the child benefit money to take care of their kids, they probably didn't have the money to cough up tens or hundreds of thousands of euros uh, over fraud allegations. And as a result, waves of unemployment, bankruptcies, and divorces hit families across the Netherlands. Um, I expect to see some type of... The fallout in this, I expect to see a, like a hit to the birth rate in the Netherlands. A small, at the very least, a short-term hit to their birth rate. And I bring that up because uh, demographics are going to play key roles in the relative power of nations as we move forward, especially in the 2020s, when a lot of these demographic trends are going to start to come to a head. Namely, the fact that there are more old people than young. So keep that in mind as we move forward. And this is probably going to hurt them more in the long term than they realize. But the collapse of the government coalition... Uh, is likely to lead to snap elections. I don't think those elections are being held just yet, 
they still have a chance to reassert the coalition has a chance to reassert control over the government right now but the situation in the Netherlands is important with regards to the EU as well given that it is one of the larger economies in the Union and what happens in the Netherlands is important because of the bloc's budget and government spending uh, EU government spending uh, Germany can't do everything and the Netherlands is a major contributor to the EU's budget and they're gonna be hard-pressed on the budget especially now as the Brit the British are gone all that Brit they were already having issues on budgets when first talk of Brexit happened back in 2016 uh, now the British are actually gone and they're gonna have to figure out what to do because the money has to they're either gonna they're gonna have to cut they're gonna have to cut spending or do what's been done right now which is print money uh i think they're resorting to printing of money that has long-term economic ramifications as well but for the sake of not accelerating that the what happens in the netherlands is important especially considering the netherlands is one of the frugal four who didn't want to give out money uh, during the financial crisis during 2020. So there's a possibility for a different coalition of uh, parties to take control and pursue that. Uh, in a, or a more fiscally conservative policy. Or even, uh, God forbid, a Eurosceptic policy. That would be horrifying for the EU. Um but uh, we'll get into that later. I don't think the Netherlands is going to be the one to leave next. Um, it's important to look at because of these developments, right? at least for the short term. But I wanted to use that situation in the Netherlands, not just because it was important, but also as a bit of a segue into Italy. Now, I have talked extensively about the potential for Italy exit. I'm not the only one who believes Italy is on deck to leave the EU. I'm not the first one who've called this out. In fact, I've been listening to other people who themselves were not the first to call this out. Uh, Dr. Steve Turley comes to mind. Uh, check him out on, well, Rumble, I'd say. As people are moving to alt tech and new platforms away from the big tech sites so there's that he's on he's on a number of platforms it shouldn't be too hard to find him uh he's talked about this as well but italy has they're in a bit of a position a very very interesting position um they've been in one for quite a while uh matteo silvini uh, used to be in power, and he was the one who stopped migrant boats from coming into Italy for a period of time. And then a new coalition from the left, uh, Matteo Salvini is right wing, um, so a coalition from the left uh, emerged and kicked him out of power, and they reopened the borders. But it was, and so everything I've reported on Italy at this point has been under that coalition that was that kicked Matteo Silvini out of power, that left-wing coalition. So understand that when we're talking about government collapses, that's who we're talking about. But um, 
Italy has been in this odd and interesting situation for a while. Um, I brought up that a majority of Italians were on board with uh, collectively either A, leaving the Euro, B, leaving the EU, and, or C, both. Collectively, that made up about, what was it, 60-something percent or close to 60% of the Italian population wanted to leave the EU in some way, whether that was politically or economic, financially, uh, well, not financially, monetarily, there we go, the monetary union. They either wanted to leave that monetary union or leave the political union. And uh, combined with the people who were on board with leaving both, uh, that made up a solid majority of the country at around 60% wanting to leave the EU in one way, shape, or form. Which is why I kept bringing up Italy whenever we talked about um, Brexit and the ramifications it's going to have and the ramifications it's already currently having on the EU right now. Um, But that being said, why do I bring Italy to you today? Well... Let's get into it. Matteo Renzi, not to be confused with Matteo Silvini, uh, Matteo Renzi is the leader of the Italia Viva party. Uh, That is a left-wing party in Italy and was a part of the current coalition. He's not anymore because he pulled out of the current of the coalition. Um, He this came over disagreements with the prime minister Giuseppe Conte over his handling of the COVID pandemic and the economic recovery effort uh, that ensued from the lockdowns. Uh, Because when you lock an economy down, you have economic problems. So, and that's another major theme that I've been noticing. Uh, I guess I'll uh, get into it at at the end of the episode where people's handling of the coronavirus has effectively cost them their control of the government. But uh, we're going to get into Italy. We'll get into that later, but we're going to keep on topic of Italy. Um, so the major point of contention between Matteo Silvini, well, not get goodness, um, not Silvini, Renzi. All right. Matteo Renzi, the key point of contention between Renzi and the ruling government uh, was that Renzi wanted to withdraw a loan from the Eurozone bailout fund, uh, which is something his now former allies didn't want to do. Uh, And because of this, Giuseppe is set to meet with the lower houses today, uh, and he'll meet with the upper house tomorrow, which is like a Senate in Italy, although it has like 300 and some seats. So it's a bit bigger. But um, because the his former coalition members refused to compromise with him on that, uh, he, Matteo Renzi left. He pulled out, and now they the Italian government has to hold votes in both chambers to decide the fate of the current ruling coalition, which currently consists of just the Partio Democratique. Uh, which in Italian means the Democratic Party, so I'll be referring to them as the Democratic Party, uh, 
eh, I guess I'll call them the Democratic Party of Italy, but officially the of Italy isn't a part of their name. But to avoid confusion over Democrats in America, I'll call them the Democratic Party of Italy. So the former coalition that Matteo Renzi's party, which was Italia Viva, uh, their other members were the Democratic Party of Italy and Five Star. Now, Matteo Renzi says that his party uh, senators will likely abstain from voting. Uh, they have to vote uh, yay or nay on the government, I believe. And he his party holds about 18 seats so that's 18 non-votes which although it's speculated that the ruling coalition even without Renzi's party uh, will still be able to have a majority uh, it won't be a clear majority which they run the risk of snap elections uh, and with snap elections we enter stage right Italy's political right. The instability of the government coalition, which consists of predominantly left-wing parties, uh, could enable the right-wing parties of Italy to assume power. Now, I wanted to look at the popularity of them uh, to kind of break down the potential of this happening. Uh, when we look at each party by popularity, we see that Five Star has around 14%, the Democratic Party of Italy has around 20%, and Italia Viva, which is Matteo Renzi's party, has around 3%. And combined, that former coalition had about 37% uh, support. Now, without Renzi, that support drops down to 34%, um, which is still a solid third of the country, which in parliamentary systems is pretty significant. Uh, but Matteo Salvini is back in the picture now, uh, assuming that they have to have snap elections, because that same polling data, uh, the aggregated uh, averages, because these are kind of like estimates I'm brought out, 14, 20, and 3%. That same data uh, shows when you break down Italy's right-wing parties, Lega, uh, which is actually, the official name is the Northern League, but I'll call it Lega, which is Matteo Silvini's party. Lega is at 23%, around 23% support. Another party called the Brothers of Italy is at 17%, and Forza Italia is at around 10%. Forza Italia being a more center-right coalition. Uh, and the Brothers of Italy actually uh, apparently being farther to the right than the League or Lega. Now, when you combine them in a potential coalition that they could form if they got around to doing that in, say, snap elections, Forza's polling numbers... Uh, oh, I, I the likely counter-coalition, before I get into Forza, uh, the coalition could round up around 50% of the vote. And the caveat for that is that Forza Italia's polling numbers are a lot less stable than the other two. But 
even just Lega and Brothers of Italy alone are around 40%, which already beats out uh, the current ruling party coalition. Uh, and that's them with Matteo Renzi's party. But should Silvini and the other right-wing parties of Italy come together, uh, even without Forza Italia, they would beat out that coalition by about 3% of the vote. With Forza, it'd be effectively a landslide. Uh, and again, this all assumes that their polling data holds firm. And given what happened in 2020 here in the U.S., that's a pretty big if uh, in my mind. But the possibility sh probably shouldn't be ignored. Uh, now, the League and the Brothers of Italy are both Euro-skeptic parties, which effectively means that they don't like the EU and they wouldn't not they would not be opposed to leaving it in some way shape or form uh and I'll point back to that data piece that polling data uh where uh combined Italians were either in favor of leaving the European Union in favor of leaving the euro or in favor of both at around 60% you you can see where that has manifested itself in these two parties but um, they are both Eurosceptic, and in a coalition, uh, either by themselves to secure a slim majority, or a coalition with Forza Italia to secure a effective uh, a mandate over the country with 50%, um, they would most likely, given that they'd be completely outnumbering Forza Italia, uh, they would really probably drag them further towards the Euroscepticism as well. Um, meaning that they're with 50% of the vote, you'd probably see an Italian referendum and it, well, an Italian exit referendum. Should these parties, one, form a coalition, that's the first thing that they would have to do. And two, they'd have to win the election. Uh, so those, those are the two things that would need to happen in order for any of this to happen. But speculation is the fun part of geopolitics, so we're going to speculate. Let's say that, well, actually, we'll speculate in just a minute. Uh, I still have a couple notes here. Because uh, in order for that to happen, Italy's ruling coalition uh, would need to mend its woes. Uh, well, it would need to not be able to mend its woes, I'm sorry. But it appears that it's not going to be able to, given that neither the Democratic Party of Italy nor Five Star are willing to compromise with Matteo Renzi's demands, um, which are that they withdraw a loan from the Eurozone bailout fund. This could lead to snap elections, given that the rift between them could lead to snap elections. Um... And we could see the right-wing parties of Italy take control. That would almost immediately probably mean border restrictions and no more people crossing the Mediterranean to get into Italy. Uh, illegally, anyway. And if these snap elections were to occur, and if the polling data holds up, these parties would come into power via coalition power, government, and... The EU's perpetual secession crisis would begin in earnest, with Italy being the second domino to fall. Um, now we'll get into speculation. If these parties 
on the assumption that their polling data holds up. Again, Forza is a bit more unstable than Lega or the Brothers of Italy. And they would have to form a coalition in the first place. Say that both of those two things happen, and they win the election. Italy would... First things first, they would shut down their borders to illegal migrants. They would almost guaranteed, given that the two major parties of that coalition are Eurosceptic, they would vote on a referendum to leave the EU at one point or another. Um, likely after the they've gotten their recovery efforts underway, I believe that they would prioritize coronavirus and the economic ramifications of lockdown before looking towards leaving the EU. So that would be like a maybe a year or two. Um, probably a year. But um, they get past that. And then you have an Italian exit referendum. Italy could leave. Italy is looking right now like it's either at or dangerously close from the European Union's perspective, dangerously close to critical mass necessary to leave the bloc. And just like I laid out, they would go through a long drawn out process as the EU would drag their feet, or maybe the Italians would just not would learn from Britain and not even bother with trade negotiations because the British had to go first. So all the mistakes that they made uh, in retrospect, because people wanted a deal, but in retrospect now, which Italy will now have the benefit of if they leave, they're probably not even going to bother negotiating with the EU, and they're just going to go for a clean, hard Italian exit, take the hit, if there is a hit to be had, and go on about their business renegotiating trade deals. And who would be waiting right there for a trade deal? Oh, that's right. It's Britain. And that trade deal, because a lot of nations in Europe that are speculating leaving, well, the people in the nations that are speculating leaving, uh, Italy in specific, the caveat was if Brexit went well for the British, then more people would be on board with their own exit referendum. But for every nation that leaves the EU, they're almost undoubtedly going to try to get a trade deal with the British because they're right there. Transport costs and whatnot are low because of the close proximity, and it's an easy access port to the wider world. So, but with that being said, every trade deal that every nation who leaves the EU signs with Britain would not just make the British situation better over time, but it would become a trend where countries go, oh, we can leave, we get a trade deal with the British, and we'll be fine. Uh, Italy did it, oh, this country did it, and this country did it. So the caveat that countries who leave have to be doing pretty good before you decide to leave, well, that decision's probably going to get easier and easier to make as we move forward because of the nature of what we're dealing with. There are nations that leave the EU are almost guaranteed 
to seek out a trade deal with the British before going to the wider world. And again, there's the wider world to interface with. But it'll start with the British. And one by one, European countries will be doing better. And you'll have this de facto alternative block of trade from countries that are outside of the EU trading with each other. And then there'll be the countries inside of the EU who are heavily regulated by the EU government. And they're going to be looking at countries that used to be a part of the EU, looking at them succeeding and thriving. And as the numbers keep growing for them and the EU keeps getting smaller and smaller, there's going to be a real sense of declinism. And countries are going to start to jump ship. And they're going to want a trade deal with the countries who have left. Which is probably going to be namely Britain. Which is what the second... It used to be the second biggest economy in the EU to begin with. Now it's on its own. And at that point in the future, it'll have a lot more trade deals. And probably a stronger independent economy. And will be a shining light in Europe for what they could get for themselves outside of the EU. Ladies and gentlemen, the EU's perpetual secession crisis is here. This can either be the beginning or it can be really strong foreboding as to what can come should Italy leave. Again, the number of assumptions we have to make are that one... The government cannot mend its woes. Two, they have to do snap elections. Three, the polling data has to hold up. And four, uh, the right-wing parties would need to form a coalition. So those are the four key assumptions in that scenario. Uh, Although I see them as decently likely assumptions to make. So, all eyes on Italy now. Because what happens in Italy is probably going to send shockwaves across Europe. Because uh, they were very disillusioned with the EU over the coronavirus uh, response. Or more accurately, the lack thereof. Spain was too. I, I can't stress this enough. Spain and France are still on deck. Spain and France are still on deck. We don't know which one's going to come first, but if Italy leaves, it could be anybody. And they're all going to, the situation I laid out to you is going to come to fruition in earnest, uh, further weakening the EU's position. Every country that leaves weakens it, and then every time they sign a trade deal with countries that left the EU, it's going to make leaving more enticing. This is it. This is it. Uh, Maybe I should save that for if Italy actually does a referendum, but this is it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, We're going to get into our closing statements in just a few moments, so uh, stick with me till then. Alright, we're back, getting into our closing statements. We have interesting things in Europe afoot. Uh, I brought up the perpetual secession crisis multiple times, and it appears that we are on the verge of it. Uh, I expect all those other people to catch on after it has already started. Um, well, 
after Italy leaves. I expect others, namely mainstream and corporate news, to catch wind of it. Um, luckily for me, I'm ahead of that story. But uh, another interesting thing to be on the lookout for is how the EU itself responds to a second nation leaving, or the potential for a second nation leaving. And it, it doesn't have to be Italy. It could be France or Spain. Those are the ones I'm looking at right now. Um, we don't know how they'll respond. Uh, I did hear about the EU forming a border patrol, a border and coast guard department for their, what was we call it, a military. Uh, they... I guess it's a first step towards a military. We'll see where they go. Maybe they ramp up their efforts of federalizing uh, the EU member states uh, to where each individual country is more akin to a state in the U.S. as opposed to an independent federal government like in the U.S. So effectively uh, demoting, we could see the EU try to accelerate that. But I would... I'd be willing to bet that that would only accelerate their decline of the EU and accelerate their perpetual secession crisis. So, I don't see a way out of this for the EU, especially if things move as fast as they're going. Because uh, the British just left. Uh, if Italy leaves, and if they learn from the British lessons, they're going to go for a clean, hard break. And there's no negotiations to be had. Um, so that's an interesting thing to keep our eyes out on for Europe. And another thing that I noticed over the, not just gathering uh, my topics for today's episode, but the couple episodes prior that I never really got around to discussing as its own topic was how a lot of leaders are being forced to either resign or they're being called to resign over their handling of the coronavirus. And those words specifically, the handling of the coronavirus, um, it's caused major instability in countries. And it's been costing leaders their power, uh, namely because the people view that they mishandled the coronavirus. Uh, and me personally, I think it's saying coronavirus is kind of inaccurate. I believe the real issue is the lockdowns. Because um, don't get me wrong, the virus is a threat, a literal threat to people's safety. But the uh, the side effects of the lockdowns appear to be equal to or greater in magnitude than the virus itself. And it seems odd that every country has opted for lockdown. Well, almost every country. There are numbers around the world who haven't, and even states here in the U.S. who are fully open. Uh, one added to the list is Oklahoma. I didn't know. Maybe they just opened up entirely now. But that's two states in the U.S. Texas is probably en route to that as well. But, um, yeah, the handling of coronavirus... Probably, if we're being more accurate, the handling of lockdowns and forcing people to stay in their homes and basically making it so they have to get a check from the government and then funny business with the government checks probably cost them their positions. But 
um, major trend of 2020 that I figured I would squeeze in here at the end of the segment to talk about it, to kind of get my thoughts a bit of an, or on it off my chest. Um, but uh, I think I think we're in for in a very interesting year. You know, what are we? What are we? Three? What? Four weeks in? This is this is week number four right here. But um yeah, I think 2021 is going to be a pretty decent year. I cannot wait for the summer. Uh the snow just set in here where I'm living at and I can already I'm already having dreams of <laughs> the bright green grass and trees. But maybe it's different for you. Maybe you like the winter. But uh that's about all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Uh, the world, as we know, and uh, as the EU is about to uh, learn one way or another, the world is changing. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, uh, stuttering throughout the entire episode, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus.